Matthew Stone, Chief Content Guru mm -hmm. here at the Leaders Performance Institute. Uh, we're sort of backstage with some sort of string quartet. What's going on here? Uh, in a Leaders First, James, we're actually going to have a string quartet introduce the session because the next session is uh, Scott Han from British Gymnastics as well as Joe Cole from Royal Academy of Music. Shaking things up a bit, James. You got a catchy title for this one? Oh, it's hitting the right note. Hitting the right note. That's how the magic works. Hello and welcome to a really very civilised edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is James Emmett and I am talking over, ruining even, a lovely performance by a string quartet of students from the Royal Academy of Music. As Matt Stone mentioned at the top of the podcast, the students played us in for one of the sessions at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit back at the beginning of November. A Leaders First, no less. Back at the summit, we had 450 performance practitioners from across the world gathered at Arsenal's Emirates Stadium in London to share best practice case studies and hear from cutting-edge innovators from inside and outside of sport. It was a bulging programme and all the sessions are available on the Leaders Performance Institute members platform at leadersinsport.com. We've got a broad package of conversations for you today in this behind-the-scenes podcast too. Later on, we'll hear from Mikhail Salvestre, the former French international football player, Enia Luko, the current England international football player, Dennis Kaiser and Mohamed Al-Sairafi. And in the first section, I talk to British cycling head coach Ian Dyer on marginal gains, peaking for key moments and the extraordinary success of Team GB at the Rio Games. 12 medals won, 6 of them gold. Absolutely fantastic achievement. I also talked to former UK Sport Director of Performance Simon Timpson on the comprehensive Futurology study that has anticipated uh, what it will take to gain an edge from 2024 and beyond. And to kick us off, Dr. Dara Harris of Washington University, who was moderating the Royal Academy of Music session, which focused on feedback, the getting and the giving of it, and the differences between how to do it in music and in sport. Uh, Dara Harris, here's a bit of immediate feedback for you. Um, great session. How did you think that went? We're live at the side of the stage. You've literally just finished. Yes. What was it about? You know, it's funny. When I'm up there, I, it's all about taking care of them. So it's interesting to even keep perspective. What I loved about it is how they fed off each other and found all the similarities. Mm. What's really interesting to me is people get into this dichotomous relationship with feedback. It's either going to be terrible or it's really ineffective. Mm -hmm. But the idea that they really bring out is they are actually looking for a cue from the athlete or musician to help them determine when and what feedback to give. So it is not a one-way street. It's actually this constant dialogue back and forth. Is this right now? I, I tried it. Did they receive it? Okay, maybe they didn't. And then they're modifying it rather than just spewing out feedback. Uh, 
Worth just explaining that you were just running a session called Hitting the Right Note, Mm -hmm. Building Trust and Giving Feedback in Two Creative Worlds, those two creative worlds being um, music and uh, gymnastic gymnastics. Joe Cole, head of strings at the Royal Academy of Music, was up there with you, uh, as well as Scott Han, uh, men's gymnastics coach at British Gymnastics. We had a lovely uh, string quartet play us in there. Um, Obviously, there are loads of similarities between uh, elite uh, musicianship and uh, an elite sport, but were you able to pick out any of the key differences there between their particular styles with, you know, is, is it more difficult, easier, the different moments to give feedback to musicians as compared to athletes? It seems like the pressure of the Olympics and the training for four years for a singular event is a different um, animal. And even talking about switching routine in five minutes and doing it. So the, the need to pivot in that sense on this very high stakes complete level is there. But with musicians, I felt like there was an element of kind of constantly striving and a constantly evolving thing. And because there's so many notes within a piece, yes, you can get hung up on a, a note, but there's not a scoring system mm-hmm. that at the end says this worked or didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, in music, this constant renewal of opportunity mm-hmm. versus within sport, yeah. you do the routine and then everyone judges you. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think that's one of the key differences. But even across those, what really makes both of them remarkable is their focus on the individual, that they want an authentic voice, they want what works for Max or what works for a musician. Mm -hmm. And then what I think is interesting is they are creating very confident performers. Mm -hmm. And when you look at these other feedback styles where basically feedback is just given to you without any of your own signals or your own readiness, it seems like that is a much more damaging process. Even though it makes coaches nervous, it looks like it potentially is really good for athletes and musicians both. You just touched on it there, but I thought it was very interesting what Joe said up there on stage about the language of feedback. And in the arts, you don't have a scoring system. So the language of feedback is completely different. And, and you know, there is this sort of stereotype of the prima donna performer who needs to be showered with praise. And in order to give any sort of feedback, you need to sort of just put a little chink of something, you know, maybe damn with faint praise. Maybe that is a form uh, of feedback. But... I mean, a really difficult environment to be a teacher in, surely, in in that kind of environment. Right. I think what's interesting is even in a prima donna, if you understand things through the lens of vulnerability, usually the bigger the buffer, the more worried they are inside. So a lot of, you know, true confidence results in consistent behavior. But, you know, when you're worried and sporadically achieving, that's when you get to the point where you're so injured by feedback. You know, it's really... The injury for feedback is almost always a signal of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Even if you think it's somebody who makes millions of dollars doing something, that if you can't handle the feedback, it probably says something about where you are psychologically. Um, so slowing down and figuring out what does that person need. But it doesn't mean you don't give very direct, very honest, this has to change kind of feedback. And I feel like that's always you know, the pushback I get when I hear mm-hmm. from people, oh, okay, it sounds really nice to listen to your athlete and give it but then I won't be able to get any it just isn't true I mean they're hungry to get better they're going to want things that you have to offer it's just being smart that is the brain open at that point to actually hear it you're obviously uh, a professional I guess you work in a a teaching environment you work in uh, at Washington um, University you're also a mother and I guess you have friends (laughs) that's Um, true you've seen them directly yeah sure (laughs) I've seen your friends um (laughs) 
is the way that you deliver feedback professionally, and obviously mm -hmm. you've learnt how mm -hmm. to deliver feedback in a professional mm -hmm. environment, and hopefully that's effective. Mm -hmm. We all have to give feedback yes. every day to you yes. know friends and family on whatever yes. you know. Is, are these shoes nice? Uh, right. You know, did I say that? Yeah. Okay. Do you do those two? Is your professional feedback giving Absolutely different from? Is no, it? It's totally the same, and here's why. My first question is always to understand where they are. Mm. That's the goal. So the feedback, and we do this, so we have an, a very formal individual learning goals program in the medical school. So every time a medical student sits down to give feedback, they are first asked, what are you working on? Okay. And then they get feedback yep. based on what they're working on. But even taking this out into the other you know, parts of your life, just simply saying to someone, how did that go? Tell me what you're thinking. Mm -hmm is where we start because then I can gauge, you know, are you going to give me a signal that you're really vulnerable? Are you completely off the mark? But you get a chance to be heard first and then it makes it so much easier. And it doesn't matter if it's, so you have to call before you, you know, go to a friend's house or whatever. Yeah. Tell me what was going on. What were you thinking? Help me understand. Yeah. And then we're going to go in. And it doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean that it isn't direct. Yeah. It just means that I know where you are yeah. before we start. If you're watching um, a friend or mm -hmm. one of your kids um, perform, you mm -hmm. know, I don't know, mu yes. music of some sort right. in an amateur way and you obviously listen to it and you watch it, mm -hmm. do you make your own judgment in your head of what you think that's like or do you are, are you asking yourself, I wonder what they think that's like? Yeah, I'm always thinking about what, they are, okay. what their perspective is. Okay. And then I also think, especially in this role being a, the mom role, it's really not my job to give feedback in that setting. So yeah. for me, you know, um, my little boy plays hockey, right? So the coach is going to take care of all of those things. And it doesn't mean that I'm an uninformed hockey parent that comes up and is like, that was awesome. Yeah. It wasn't awesome. Yeah. Because they, they need to trust you. Yeah. But then it is a process of what do you need to know from me? I mean, maybe what you need is a hug because I yeah. love you and I don't care if you, yeah. you know, miss that slap shot. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. what do you need from me in this moment, not okay. that other. Dara Harris, thank you very much indeed. It's great. Simon Timpson, former Director of Performance UK Sport, you've just come off the back of a quite phenomenally successful uh, Rio Olympic Games for the Great British team. Uh, it's all down to you, I suppose. Absolutely not. I mean, we are very fortunate in the UK to have a fantastic high-performance system uh, populated by 38 world-class programmes across Olympic and Paralympic sport with a great set of performance directors, coaches, scientists, medics, um, engineers at the English Institute of Sports as well, um, who have been behind the athletes for eight years now. We started investing in uh, Rio success the day the Beijing Games finished in 2008. I think what we all saw in Rio, Great Britain becoming the first nation ever to be more successful in the Olympic Games post-hosting, was really a culmination of uh, 20 years now almost of national lottery investment, a sustained and very clear and focused strategy and uh, a system that really understands that its athletes are its greatest assets and it's the coaches that enable the athletes to succeed and we've invested systematically in that. Uh, for Rio over the last eight years. UK Sport's just undertaken uh, with various partners, I believe, uh, a big body of research, uh, sort of a piece of futurology uh, work looking at uh, what high performance sport will mean, I suppose, uh, eight years, even further hence. 
Um, are you able to share anything about what uh, that, that body of research concluded? Yeah, we, we, um, we look back at the start of 2015 on our responsibilities as the country's strategic agency for high-performance sport and said we, we need to take a, a step back and um, get up to a high level and think about what's the future of high-performance look like? What are the mega trends that are going to influence uh, success in 2024 and even beyond. So we ran a series of nine future labs looking at things like the future of athlete health, uh, the future of coaching, the future of leadership, the future of um, technology. And, and what does that mean for, for the way that we need to work with sports and our athletes to, to help them succeed in the future? And I think that the main conclusion was what you need to do to win probably isn't going to change significantly but how we do it the ways in which we work are going to change probably beyond any of our uh, imaginations and more quickly than we expect and to to give you a simple example you know google who we heard from at leaders this morning uh, are developing the driverless car and we can see a situation where in eight years time most athletes are traveling to training uh, in a driverless car and that opens up with other technologies like um, the potential for personalized medicine, uh, the microchipping of, of athletes, uh, the development of virtual reality that athletes can maybe have longer in bed to rest and recover and then get up a bit later because they can have a personalized meal in the car on the way to training. They can do some uh, preparation work that might be uh, virtual reality based on the way into training. So we, we can see all kinds of innovative ways of um, promoting recovery and uh, preparing for training and optimizing performance coming just from, say, the advent of the, the driverless car. Mm -hmm. Still needs to do the same things to win on the field, but how you achieve that new level of performance will look, I think, very different in eight years' time to how it does in 2016. Here's a prediction for eight years' time that I'm happy to uh, put my neck on the line for. You won't be at UK Sport um, because you've already left. You are a, a week, seven days into a new role as performance director at the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association, essentially uh, the governing body for British tennis. Um, Andy Murray's just become number one. It's job done for you, uh, I suppose. <laughs> See you in January. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, it's a hugely exciting opportunity. Um, I was thrilled when the LTA approached me about the role and, and, and the prospect of working with the country's brightest young tennis talent to uh, create a sustainable pipeline of, of players that can keep us at the top of the world's game for many years to come. So the focus for, for certainly my first 12 months in the job is going to be looking very carefully at how we use the National Tennis Centre in Roehampton. How can we create it, turn it into a, a, a world-class centre of excellence for science, medicine, um, reconditioning, support services for our elite players? Look at the way that we, we can add val genuinely add value on a weekly and a monthly basis to, to our best players like Andy Murray and Joe Conter's preparations. How we can identify and develop the next generation and we've got a, a big job on our hands to to really reimagine the the pathway from national junior 
through senior and professional tennis to get more players um, into the top world, world's top 100 and, and hopefully then more super elite, you know, top 32 in the world, seeded for Grand Slams and, and contending. It's a huge challenge ahead, a great team of people at the LTA that I'm, I'm incredibly excited to be working with. And a lovely office as well. Fantastic. Um, final question. Um, we're asking a lot of uh, sort of senior performance practitioners uh, this question. Um, what, looking back at your uh, career, various places that you've been at, what do you feel was your biggest mistake, your biggest single mistake, and, and what do you feel you learnt from it? No doubt. I talked about my biggest mistake at many a leadership conference. Um, goes back to... Um, January 2002 um, at the Bob Track in La Plan and, and the Great Britain skeleton team preparing for the Olympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City in 2002. We had Alex Coomber who was the um, you know the once in a generation athlete in the sport, hardly ever lost a race and we've done a fantastic bit of, of research over 12 months looking at the friction coefficients of different steels on ice. Mm. Um, and we've gone to the level of detail as to bring back gallons of water from the hoses that they used to make the ice on the track in Salt Lake City um, to test in a lab at, at the University of Bath. And we produced these fantastic runners. And uh, we said, Alex, here they are. Strap them on your sled and you're going to go like a rocket. So she does, and she hit the roof of corner six, got off at the bottom, swore at me, chucked them in the bin, never to use them again, and won a bronze medal. Following year, Kristen Bromley became the first athlete in history to win every World Cup race, the European Championships and the World Championships in, in the same season on those runners. Yeah. Um, the plan to develop the technology was absolutely perfect, but we hadn't considered the human interaction with uh, the technology and how we would give Alex confidence okay. in that process and that they were the right runners and the runners for her um, that would make the difference. and, and that she should put aside the ones she was used to using and used for a long time. So, real lesson that um, you can have the perfect plan and the great technology, but if you don't have the trust and faith of the athlete in what you're doing, um, you're really going to struggle. And I learned that lesson that day. Okay. Simon Timson, thank you very much. Pleasure. Hi, my name's Ian. I've got a role of head coach at British Cycling Team. Uh, my responsibility is largely charged with uh, overseeing the programmes, the coaching programmes, and working alongside the coaches to make sure that we can deliver those programmes effectively to the athletes. Mm -hmm. um, you've just been on stage here at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit in London. Um, interesting to hear the old uh, classic uh, British Cycling Team Sky Marginal Gains uh, be described as uh, the P's in the steak and peas. Uh, is that something you've, you've talked about before? Uh, a little bit. Certainly, certainly within, uh, within the office, it, it's, a, it's a, a, a daily conversation, really, to make sure that we're still continuing to master the basics and that we get the basics right before we worry about the details. Yeah. The details, as you say, and the marginal gains to be had there are something that we're famous for, but I still think it's critically important that we get the basics right and I think that's something that we do exceptionally well which probably doesn't get enough credit but that is the, the building blocks of our performance. 
Um, up there in your session, you were talking about uh, one of the uh, would-be marginal gains or that, that you could have had uh, in, in Rio, which was uh, some sort of new tyre compound, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that didn't quite work out. Are there more marginal gains that don't see the light of day than do? Yeah, many more. In fact, it was quite interesting in Rio where there was actually an article dedicated to the things that we'd missed. Right. And uh, so, I, naturally, I was quite interested by what all of these that these gains were that we'd that we'd missed and of course it like with a lot of nations it only really focuses on the visual things that that you can see and I can quite comfortably uh, confirm now that we'd looked at all of those things over the last 12 years or longer and uh, for one reason or another either tried them and, and, and ditched them or maybe they didn't even get off the drawing board so we, we, we don't miss many things in, in that respect and uh, for sure there's some things that we've shelved along the way perhaps through lack of time or resources that we'll come back to but you know, yeah. not everything works and you've got to be a, you know you just got to be brave to give everything a go and, and see what comes was one of them the US or the Canadians with the drivetrain on the other yeah. side of the bike you'd looked at that yeah that, that got looked at a long time ago and and you know there's there's a there's a there's a there's potentially a gain in there it's so minute that it's easy to lose it in the noise of of your testing and uh the resolution of the data that you get from your testing but at the time we determined that the the disruption that it would cause with regard to uh equipment and everything that came with it uh was too big to to service um and also something that we had to consider is that there's a life of the bike and the equipment beyond just the olympic games itself um, and that it's, it's something that needs to continue to be usable outside of the Olympic Games and something that's just a little bit uh, off, the, off the beaten track like that if it's not a, a really strong tangible gain is something that we're quite prepared to shelve. Mm-hmm. Um, phenomenal success in Rio, absolutely out of this world, brilliant performance from the whole team. Um, well, from any cycling team that's ever gone into a velodrome <laughs> in, a, uh, uh, you know, in an Olympic Games. What British cycling has become so good at over the last uh, probably 12, 14, 16 years is uh, peaking for the Olympic Games. have absolutely nailed peaking. Is there a, a secret to that? And, and, and is it the case that you don't necessarily target world championships in the same way as you target the Olympics? Yeah, it's absolutely true. The, the Olympics is the key target. And as I've said, we're, we're fortunate that UK Sport enable us to go about doing our work in that way and of course we have milestone targets along the way but those targets actually reflect where we're expected to be in that Olympic cycle this isn't an incremental thing that's just going to continue taking a a step up annually uh, until we get to the Olympics it recognizes that once we've got through one Olympics that we're going to dissect everything that we've done go back to the building blocks once again forensically forensically, uh, investigate every, every possible area and go again and start with a fresh challenge and inevitably that means you're breaking a lot down in order to build it back up stronger so you know the energy is just like the uh, the foundations of a tall building if you want your building to be taller you can't just keep building on top of an already tall building at some point in time you've got to knock it down build a stronger set of foundations and go again and that's exactly what we set out to achieve how many golds was it in Rio? do you know what you're asking probably the worst person in the world because i have i have no idea um and and the reason why i have no idea is it because that's gone now and it's sort of history and um i don't know whether it's a blessing or a curse to look so far forward um but uh you know the the enjoyment is there from the from the win and you know but it's the enjoyment of the moment 
and, uh, and and now it's like well I can't say it's like it never happened um, but it's very definitely about moving forward now so if you ask me about how many medals here or there do you know what I've got I've got no idea I, I think it was uh, it, it was totally remarkable I think it was just two or three gold medal, medals left on the table for other yeah. other nations yeah. going into Tokyo I know it's a long way away that is a difficult position for you, is it? Is it not? In that, it's highly unlikely that you're going to achieve a better result than you achieved in Rio. So, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, asking you to say what your medal targets are for, for Rio at this point, because of course you, you wouldn't know. But is there some sort of reframing of what success will look like for Tokyo? I, I think we're, we're definitely picking up on that. Um, the, the one thing I would say at this point in time is that that sort of comment was, was broadly levelled at us between Beijing and London um, and then once again between London and Rio and, and so now between Rio and Tokyo it's entirely expected that people are going to come to us and say look you know you can't achieve this again and those questions get even louder when we're midway through the Olympic cycle and we haven't continued to dominate world cycling at world championship level because we're bu- busy building for, for Tokyo mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I do get that I do understand that um, I think the most important thing for us now is that we we remain as nimble as possible to what potential changes might look like already since Rio the Omnium event has changed quite drastically um, there's a rumour of another event coming in for, for the endurance track riders. So that's something we need to be responsive to and be alert to. So, you know, as I say, we're just going back to, to our building blocks once again. Our academy proce- process is always very much based around that. And uh, we've already seen in Glasgow last weekend how good the young riders actually are in, in world terms, which was great to see. So I'm confident going forward that we're, we're taking the right approach on that. As to how many we get... All I can say is that we're aiming to be the best that we can possibly be on the day. I'm very confident in our ability to deliver that. Whether or not that's a gold medal or any medal will remain to be seen, and it's very much in the hands of the other teams. As much as we move forward in the course of an Olympic cycle, some nations get it wrong and actually move backwards, and sometimes that winning, that winning margin appears greater than, than, it, uh, than it is at any other point in the Olympic cycle. A period of flux and upheaval at British Cycling at the moment, I think it's fair to say. Obviously, um, Shane Sutton, the performance director, is no longer uh, with the organisation. I think Ian Drake, the chief executive, is leaving early next year. Uh, There is an ongoing UK anti-doping investigation into the organisation. From your perspective, how do you deal with that flux and upheaval? Are you trying to shut out the noise or are you embracing the whole spirit of it? Embracing the spirit. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a tricky time. <laughs> Let's get in there. Um, no, I think the, the most important thing for us, um, Shane resigned his post. He was, he was technical director. Sorry, and, yeah, technical uh, director. When, when he resigned his post, the, the most important thing for us is that we, we minimised any noise and distraction for the athlete. I mean, that was really the reason why Shane resigned at the time, because he could see this would be a major distraction for the athletes. So I think from that point of view, we've, con- we've tried really, really hard throughout the, the remainder of the Rio cycle and still going forward... Um, uh, whilst we're looking to recruit a new performance director um, to, to minimise any road bumps for the athletes and that their programme, their day-to-day interaction with their coaches and their performance support staff is just as normal as possible. And I think we did a really good job of that. I mean, I think that's borne out in the results. But, uh, you know, there were definitely athletes that 
were affected and impacted by Shane's departure. Um, he was always very, very performance-minded, always very close to the athletes. So inevitably, you know, some of them found it found it hard. It was our job to rally around them and, and make sure that it, it didn't become a, a significant factor in their preparation. So from that point of view, we we, we, we did that well. And I think for, for me professionally speaking, it, it did add extra challenges going into Rio, um, sort of being such a significant staff member down in, in performance terms was, was, was challenging. But, uh, you know, with the support of, of, of everyone there from the team, you know, I think we, we did a good job. And uh, that's not just measured in the medals, but it's measured in the experience of Rio. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of it, I guess we just wait and see. Yeah, watch this space. Yeah. Okay. Ian Dyer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Welcome back to roughly two-thirds of the way through the uh, Leaders Performance podcast, and all is not lost. As a special treat, uh, I've decided to play the full uh, performance from the String Quartet from the Performance Summit back in November at the end of the podcast, so uh, stay tuned, consider it an incentive to listen uh, to the uh, all the way through to the end of this recording. Coming up, uh, the next batch of interviews, I'll be speaking to Enia Luco, uh, the uh, Chelsea striker. Uh, I nabbed her in the corridor uh, on the way to a session at the summit back in November. Um, she was on her way to um, a talk about neuroscience. Um, she also busted us for a bit of a, a program change, uh, which we did. Um, she also looks ahead uh, to what she considers to be the next big thing in soccer, uh, which is uh, VR. Um, then I'll be talking to Dr. Mohammed Al-Sairafi, who's the general manager of the Anti-Doping Lab Qatar, or ADLQ. Um, he'll be explaining some of the groundbreaking research uh, which the lab is doing in anti-doping, particularly focusing on um, over-the-counter supplements, what's exactly in them, and uh, should we be warning athletes about using them a little bit more um, than we currently do. He'll also talk about genetic doping. Um, then we have a conversation with Dennis Kaiser, the founder of fitness equipment giant, uh, the Kaiser Corporation. Um, he'll be giving uh, insight into his iron um, and talking about why uh, he believes that uh, strength and conditioning thinking hasn't evolved at all in roughly 100 years. I also threw him uh, something of a hot potato question um, on the morning of uh, Donald Trump's US presidential election victory, um, as indeed it was on the day that we spoke. Uh, and finally, we'll hear from uh, former French international soccer player Mikel Silvestre, um, who is now the sports director at uh, French club Stade René. Enia Luco, Chelsea forward here at Stam uh, not Stamford Bridge, here at the Emirates. Uh, unfamiliar territory for you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, always interesting when I come to the red half of London. Yeah. Um, I always wonder, you know, whether I'll uh, I'll come out alive. Yeah. Well, I think you're. <laughs> but um, no, it's uh, I'm really pleased to be here. I really enjoyed the last leaders event yeah. and. Um, you know, it's always great for me to learn more in my free time and, um, yeah, just yeah. sort of glean more information. So about you've, you've been here all day? Which sessions have you, you no, managed to go I, to? No, I actually just got here about okay. an hour ago and okay. um, I'm keen on the neuroscience session. Yes, um, coming up in 20 minutes Coming or up so. in 20 minutes. I actually thought it was... Yeah, there's yeah, been a, there's been a, a switch around. around. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, really interested in that because I think the, 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 the sort of athlete mindset and... Mm. 
how we can really tap into using our brains more effectively is very important mm -hmm. and um, it's not necessarily something that athletes are necessarily aware of and it's yeah. actually something my coach at Chelsea Emma Hayes is constantly banging on about yeah you know being at the front of the brain and neuroscience and stuff like that being so, present yeah being yeah. present yeah. Um, and just being in more con in control of certain emotions okay so yeah that's yeah. kind of what I'm keen on and then obviously just networking and meeting people from yeah. different sports in the industry yeah. as well neuroscience obviously uh, a big area and you're right we'll be hearing about that uh, a little bit later here at the event looking into the future more broadly and a bit of a difficult question but what do you think will be the next big substantive gains in, in performance in take your sport in, in football um, I actually think uh, virtual reality is going to be the next sort of I don't know if you want to call it a fad but I think it's going to be the next big thing yeah you know, as, as sort of data has become the, sort of almost the focus now of sport, I think virtual reality is going to be that for, for, you know, so rather than players necessarily having to try and recreate um, situations in whatever respective sport they play, they're mm. actually visually being put in those situations through virtual reality. Yeah. Um, for me as a striker, you know, it's something I would certainly encourage and welcome because I don't know how you can necessarily always recreate the pressure of being one-on-one -on -one with a goalkeeper with 40,000 people around you. You can't, but yeah. you can get as near as possible to that, you know, big onrushing keeper. And if I can train that, you know, through a virtual reality, you know, having a, I don't know, a hologram running towards me, yeah. that is like a super awesome... Um, I think a resource to have yeah. um, so I, w I would hope that comes into the game yeah. I think with all the money that football has certainly they can afford to we can afford to experiment yeah. experiment those things I know American football has really been quite advanced with that mm. and I think football can be too I am Mohamed Al-Sayrafi the general manager of the anti-doping lab Qatar so you've just been up on stage uh, here at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit uh, Day 2, uh, up on the anti-doping uh, panel talking about excellence in groundbreaking research uh, in the anti-doping field. That's exactly what your business is, groundbreaking research. Exactly. What's on the top of your agenda at the moment? In regard to research, the top of our agenda is now we're working on uh, uh, supplements and uh, trying to find out mainly the uh, over-the-counter supplements. Uh, what do they really contain? Is, is the, does it uh, match the label it's on them? Uh, are there any additional substances that they're not there? Um, and also would like, would like to start warning athletes about using them. So we take the supplements and now anabolic steroids specifically uh, to study the, their effect on the health of athletes and also assess their effect on performance. Mm -hmm. uh, do they really enhance performance as they claim, or is it uh, a hoax, or, or is it a pseudo effect? We don't know yet. It was an interesting discussion up there on stage. Sir Craig Reedy, the president of WADA, was up there with you, and there was uh, some back and forth in the conversation about um, the regulation of the supplement market uh, as things stand. Supplements are not regulated anywhere in the world, which is why this research needs to be done. Um, and you were suggesting, which I think is an interesting idea, that maybe WADA should come out and, uh, you know, 
do WADA accredited uh, supplements, sort of give a, ba- a WADA approved uh, supplement. He was suggesting maybe yeah. that was a legal issue and that <laughs> yes. would be really difficult. But it's an interesting idea. Can you expand on why that might be good? Yeah. yeah. Well, not necessarily WADA, but WADA because Sir Craig was there, I thought it's a good idea. And I, I don't know about legality. I'm, I'm not a legal person. But to me, it's very, it's very important that an athlete, before taking anything, they know what's in it. Yeah. And pharmaceuticals are well known, well registered, well documented. Uh, you can take them as, uh, with, with that uh, the, the prescription from your doctor. But now even doctors cannot prescribe supplements because they don't really know what's in them. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think we solve a huge problem if we, if we start some kind of registration. Uh, I know supplement companies or makers, they, they are against this. But maybe they will like it if they're if they're told that you get that stamp from a world-known organization yeah. that you are okay. Then maybe that will encourage them to start doing it. Yeah. Another interesting topic of conversation up there on stage was this idea of genetic doping, which has been around as an idea for a long time. In your position at the uh, anti-doping uh, lab, Qatar. Can you give us an understanding of um, whether it's a prevalent practice now? Is genetic doping happening? I have no proof to what I'm saying, but I think, yes, it is happening. Uh, Why do I think so? Because uh, genetic therapy is available. And that's that's what cheats in sport do. They they steal either medical procedures or pharmaceutical medicines that are made for for a good cause, made to cure serious uh, diseases so they take them and abuse them and and the same way they abused pharmaceutical drugs they can abuse the genetic uh, treatment Dr. Mohamed Al-Sarafi thank you very much indeed thank you Dennis Kaiser from Kaiser Corporation obviously Uh, how are you doing how are you finding uh, leaders over the last two days it's been great it's a great venue we get the chance to meet more people uh, in the area that we want. It's, yeah. not, it's not a matter of, of just a lot of people, but it's quality people. And, yeah. it, and it's, it's, uh, you nurture great relationships, so it's, it's been a great venue. Uh, walking around uh, the Emirates Stadium for the Leaders Sport Performance Summit over the last two days, it's amazing how many people that I bump into from sports organizations across the world, lots of different sports, who all say that they use uh, Kaiser equipment, Kaiser technology, um, which is a great thing for you. Um, give us an idea of, uh, of what exactly the products are that you provide. Well, I think the big difference between us and everyone else that builds what we would call strength equipment uh, is that we built, we built the strength at game speed. We don't use iron weight because iron weight has a lot of mass to it, takes a lot of force to get that mass moving. Uh, once it's moving, it's got a lot of momentum. Uh, and so it, it tends to work you in the areas, it works you heavy in the areas in which you're most vulnerable to injury. Uh, and it's dependent upon gravity to return that iron. Uh, and so you're really limited on the speed at which you can train. So we've, we've been, it's been ingrained in us over the years to, to train at this slow controlled speed. But when we, we, we in, in the weight room, we're asked to train at a slow controlled speed and then we're asked to go out on the pitch and play a fast game. So in doing so, we kind of set the brain up to record these slow speed movements 
in a weight room and then go out and, 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 and do exactly the opposite on the pitch. What we're able to do with our pneumatic resistance uh, is to train the strength at game speed. So they're not limited at the speed at which they can move that, that handle or that bar, the arm. So we completely break this, this mold of, of this constant slow speed uh, weight lifting, so to speak, and we get into training it more like they're going to play the game. Sport's big business now. Um, it gets ever more professional, more and more people involved as every year goes by. Thinking specifically about strength and conditioning units, I suppose, uh, within sports entities, how have you seen strength and conditioning thinking evolve over the last five or ten years? It's a tough, uh, gra- uh, a tough uh, question. Uh, huh? Outside of us, uh, it hasn't evolved. It hasn't evolved in a hundred years. In all honesty, it really hasn't. Now, the conditioning side, certainly. But, but when you look at, at kind of this evolutionary process, uh, we've, we've reached the point of diminishing returns by lifting the iron in the ways that we've been doing all these years. And we keep kind of going back to things that didn't work in the past. Uh, we've been through the kettlebell business, you know, two or three cycles already in the last hundred years or more. Uh, We try to create these movements. We try to do things that might be more explosive, but we're always limited by gravity and this mass that we have to move. Uh, So the evolutionary process has been slow. For us, it's about taking taking training to a higher level. When I, I cut my teeth on designing weight stack equipment okay so that's that that's where I came from but I also looked with a very open mind at the individual the athlete because a lot of people what happens is they look at the 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 modality that they can train the athlete with the iron whether it's free weight whether it's a weight stack doesn't matter they look at the iron and then they say, okay, how do I build a better athlete with that equipment? And that's the strength coach's job. I, did, I looked at the athlete. I didn't look at the iron. I looked at the athlete and I said, how do I take that athlete to a higher level of performance? Yeah. Okay. Then you start with the athlete. Then you design the proper equipment to take that athlete to a higher level of performance. And what we're able to do with our equipment is to take that athlete to a higher level of performance and do it safer. Because now we don't have the shock loading of having to stop that falling weight and starting it in the opposite direction at a point in the range of motion where we're most vulnerable to injury. Mm -hmm. So we have less of a chance of ending an athlete's career in a weight room and a greater chance to take them to even higher human potential final question and it's a hot potato one and it's not strictly linked to your business um, but are you looking forward to a Trump presidency? I'm looking forward to someone that doesn't think in terms of the way our normal politicians think. Trump being a business person and I think it's it'll be interesting to have somebody who is a business oriented person, someone who has signed the front of a paycheck someone who has had to meet a payroll, uh, and someone who kind of recognizes 
that the U.S. has to be global. And I don't mean just global in its rhetoric or its, its military, but I'm talking about global in its, in its thinking as far as the U.S. is concerned. Because 50 years ago, 60 years ago, we, the U.S., the arrogance of the American, the ugly American, we could consume everything that we built. So it didn't matter if we all paid 35% corporate tax or 90% corporate tax, we were all on the same playing field. What we have to do as a, as a country is think in terms of making our country competitive, our products competitive. We, don't, we can't consume everything we build today because we've got so many other products coming in from other countries. So we have to make sure that we open markets abroad for our own products. Kaiser, over 40% of our business is international. We have to be able to compete with products made in Italy or products made in Finland or products made in China. Even as a company, we're the only company that builds a bike, a, a spin bike, a Group X bike, in the United States. Every company that we compete with, the bike is built in Elsewhere. It's built in Asia for the, mo yeah. for the most part. So we have to be very good at what we do. And we've, we've as a company, made that a mandate that we're not going to send our jobs overseas. That we're going to, to hone our manufacturing skills to be competitive. Our country has to think in the same way. So that part, I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. I want someone who thinks in terms of the value of the dollar and how that affects our ability to export and to be competitive. Someone who thinks in terms of how much corporate tax. So you just pays the highest corporate tax in the world. All right? And, and it's not just cutting tax for the wealthy like they would like us to believe, but it's making our products competitive with the world products. We've got great people in the United States. We need to take advantage of the fact that we have good people that can build good products. Certainly Kaiser has great people. And we want to be competitive internationally. Dennis Kaiser, you're obviously a man who sees a challenge as an opportunity. Thank you very much uh, for being with us. Cheers. My pleasure, James. Thank you. Mikhail Silvestra, hello. Thank you very much for joining us on the Leaders Performance Podcast. We're here at the Leaders Sport Performance Summit at the Emirates Stadium, one of your old homes. Have you got fond memories of being here? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's not uh, a long time ago, so it's still fresh in my memories and it's still the same manager and, uh, and some of the players I played with. Yeah. Uh, so I, I always follow Arsenal and yeah. it's great to be back in uh, on the other side of the game. Yeah. Tell us what you're doing now. You're at uh, Stade Rennais, is that right? Yeah, I came back uh, a year ago, so the, July 2015. I started working for the club as uh, sports director, kind of role. My exact title is Chargé de Mission uh, uh, for, for the president. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be back to uh, my, uh, um, my ex-club, where everything started, really. Mm -hmm. Um, you obviously had a long and distinguished playing career, you're a French international, you played for many years at Manchester United under Alex Ferguson, you obviously played here for a little bit uh, at Arsenal under Arsene Wenger. Now, as you say, on the other side of the game as a sort of performance director or a, a, a football directory role, 
can you point to where your influences have come from? Would you say that you're, you know, you take more from Alex Ferguson, more from Arsene Wenger? Do, do you know what is the Mikel Silvestre style? No, I'm trying to to take the the best of you see of uh, every managers coaches have been uh, I've been working with, and it's um, it's it's man management and common sense in the end when you when it's time to to take decision. Uh, so in football, people tend to uh, rush into decisions and. Uh, as a player, I've been uh, facing uh, big highs and big lows, so I try to stay uh, like in the middle, you know, and uh, keep the, the balance in within my decision and within the club as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question, Mikhail, and then I'll, I'll let you get on with your day. Um, we're asking everyone that we're talking to here um, about their biggest mistakes. We believe, um, lots of people in the performance industry believe, um, that mistakes really shape you going forward. You learn a lot from them. So looking back at your career, either on the pitch or, or now off it, can you point to, to one moment where you thought, yeah, that's, that's one of my biggest mistakes, and, and, and then what did you learn from that? I don't know. I've done, I've done a few. I think it's uh, reacting in the heat of the moment, um, especially... Uh, uh, straight after a game or a disappointment mm-hmm. uh, you should always try to reflect on, on things and and not um, have sudden um, decision because the next day like you say the the, uh, the the saying like sleep on it and and you should always sleep on on the decision yeah, yeah. Did, did you have many red cards as a player were you uh, did you have a, a hot temperament no, I've had only one red card, and that was during uh, an Arsenal uh, United game at Ibury. I got sent off for uh, headbutting uh, Freddie Jungberg. I remember. Yeah. So that was uh, the one and only. And yeah, I've I've never collected more than five yellow cards in in one season, so I was never really suspended. But he winds you up though, Freddie Jungberg. He's an annoying man. No, it was uh, Dennis oh, Dennis okay. Beckham, but. Uh, Freddie paid the price for it. (laughs) And so did you. Mikel Silvestre, thank you very much. Thank you very much.